We're reading the book of Revelation together, but we're not reading the whole book. We're reading chapters 2 and 3. And as we prepare for uh, this partnership uh, where the porch people are going to join us here and we're going to plant this new church together up the street, uh, one of the things we've been talking about is just, well, we did what is a church? And now we're reading these seven letters and we're kind of just asking the question, well, what's a church supposed to look like? What's a church not supposed to look like? Uh, these are some wonderful, uh, there's some wonderful insights here uh, in these seven letters. And so uh, if you remember, every one of these letters follows a basic pattern where Jesus first talks about himself and then he says something nice about a church. Uh, and then he says something bad about a church. And then he says, now, this, you know, because of the bad, here's what you need to do. Here's what happens if you do it, and here's what happens if you don't do it. And that's kind of the pattern that every one of these letters seems to follow. And so whenever one of the letters breaks that pattern, it's something we need to stop and take a look at. And this letter today, uh, so we're in Revelation 3, we're going to read 7 through 13. Um, this letter today is one of those that breaks the pattern. Um, so there are two letters that break the pattern in the same way. There's the letter to the church in Smyrna, if you remember, we read that letter. Um, and this one is to the church in Philadelphia, right, the city of brotherly love. And what the difference here is that neither of these churches had a rebuke. So in neither of these letters is there, here's what's wrong with this church. There's nothing bad. And so both of these letters are very similar. And so what I want to do is read them both back to back, uh, and then we'll walk through together the letter um, in, uh, we'll walk through the letter in um, Philadelphia together. Uh, all right, so to, first the church in Smyrna, uh, 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words in the, of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slanders of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So that's the first letter that broke the pattern. There's nothing bad in that letter. It's just, look, you guys are being faithful in your it, while you're being persecuted, and that's awesome. And Jesus says, good job for that. Continue on. And he basically says the same thing now to the letter in Philadelphia a few letters later. Uh, it says this, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write the words of the Holy, uh, the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set you before an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming in the whole world uh, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Okay, so those are the two letters. Now, let's just walk through this letter. Um, oh, I missed a part. There's verse 12 and 13. I lied. We're going to keep going. Uh, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down uh, from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So those are the two letters. They're very similar. There's a, a lot uh, that each has in common. So let's just walk through uh, each of these. I'm sorry, let's walk through the letter now to Philadelphia. So it starts here in verse 7 with the same way that every one of these letters starts, which is just a simple description of Jesus. And most of these descriptions of Jesus are kind of restated something from chapter 1 of Revelation, which we didn't read. So at some point, you should go back and read chapter 1 of Revelation. It's really interesting. But anyway, here's what he says. This is how he describes himself. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the keys, uh, the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one uh, opens. So basically, Jesus describes himself here as he's writing to the church. Uh, he says four, he's called four things. The first thing he's called is the Holy One. Now, that's just kind of easy to read through when you're reading through some of these titles for Christ, right? Oh, Jesus, the Holy One, the true, you know, whatever, and just kind of pass over it. But this is actually pretty important. Um, this is an unmistakable title that's constantly used for Yahweh God in the Old Testament. And uh, I don't know if I gave this illustration when we started reading it, but I love, um, do you guys remember that movie, A Christmas Story? You guys remember this? Okay, it's the greatest Christmas movie of all time, right, with the little kid. And uh, at, at, in, towards the end of the middle of the movie, I guess, um, he sends off to get his little orphan Annie, is that what it is, a decoder ring? Do you remember that? And uh, anyway, it's like a little decoder ring, and then every night he has to listen to the radio, and they give a certain amount of letters, and he turns his little thing, uh, you know, his key, and then it helps him translate the message. And then uh, <laughs> the message was, be sure to drink your Ovaltine, and it was just a commercial, and he's all upset, you know, he's, all, he's pretty mad about it. Well, anyway, when you're reading the book of Revelation, the Old Testament is our orphan Annie decoder ring. And it's sort of the lens we have to look at the book of Revelation through. And so when you come across a title like this describing Jesus— using a title for God, that's a very important thing, right? It says that Jesus is the holy God. This, he is divine. And so what does it mean to call Jesus holy? What does holy mean? Well, it means, like, what it literally means is, like, cut apart or separated. And what this means, we say holy in, about Jesus or God in two aspects, right? The first is that he's separate from his creation in that he created everything and what was created is not a part of him, right? We're not pantheists who believe everything is God, that sort of thing. Um, and so he is distinct from his creation. We call that the transcendence. The second way we talk about the holiness of God is that he's separate from our sin. So sin has affected everything in the universe. And the world has fallen. The universe has fallen. We're affected by sin. The natural world around us is affected by sin. Everything is affected by sin except for uh, Jesus, except for God. And so while we're dirty, uh, he is clean. And so um, this is why in Revelation 6, and we see this in... Um, Isaiah, is that chapter 6 too? I'm sorry, it's Revelation 4 and Isaiah chapter 6, where the angels are swirling around the throne room. And what are they saying? They're saying, God is holy, holy, holy. It's the only spot in the Bible where we see God called something three times in a row, which is like a way to talk about perfection. He is perfectly holy. And this is where we get to the awesome part, is this magnificent holiness of God. He is perfectly separated from his creation. He's perfect. He is not sinful. This title is used to describe the man Christ Jesus, right? All of this holiness resides in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, right? God became flesh. That's awesome. All right, so the second way he's described is as the true one. So he's holy and he's true. Now in Greek, there are two words that we would translate into English as true. So when you read in the ESV or in your English Bible where it says true, there's actually two Greek words behind that. The first one means true and not false. So what, like a statement that is true. The second one, though, means true and not fake. So it means we would say uh, that's the second sense is what's used here. It's almost like um, 
we would say authentic, genuine, uh, right? In, in our day, we'd say he's the real deal, right? There's no sense of uh, falsehood in him. And so that's amazing. That's somebody that you can actually trust. The third way he's described is the one who has the key of David. This is taken from, again, from Isaiah 22, where it says, And I will place on his shoulder, talking as a prophecy about Jesus, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. So this whole section is just a quote from Isaiah. Jesus is that promised Messiah through the line of David. And then the fourth thing it says here, Who opens, and no one will shut, and who shuts, no one will open. So what does Jesus do? He has the authority of the King of David, the Messiah through the line of David. And what does he do with that authority? Uh, he, uh, he exercises his authority by opening this door. Now, um, uh, let's think about this in light of the book of Revelation. Why was the book of Revelation written? It was written to encourage churches to face persecution through the whole uh, tribulation age through through Babylon, right? We've talked about this evil system of Babylon that's in the world that is uh, diametrically opposed to the things of God. And so um, the church is meant to endure through that system of Babylon. But here's the thing. This is talking here about Jesus has authority even while Babylon around us is trying to crush us. And it makes me think of the book of Habakkuk. Now, this is a really weird Old Testament minor prophet that you probably only read when you're doing your reading plan through the Bible, but it's a super interesting book. I'm going to teach it to you someday. Here's the basic gist of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk goes to God, and he says, hey, God. God says, hey. And then he says, how long are you going to put up with the wicked sins of these people of Israel? These guys, Habakkuk the prophet, he says, these guys are driving me nuts. They're sinning here, they're sinning here, and you're not even doing anything about it. This is what he says to God. And then God says, oh, I'm going to do something, but you're not going to like it. And Habakkuk goes, well, tell me anyway. And God says, no, I don't want to tell you. And then he's like, tell me. Fine, I'll tell you. I'm going to send the wicked Babylonian army to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And then Habakkuk at the end of the book says, oh, I wish you wouldn't have told me that. And that's kind of how the book ends, right? But here's the thing. The point being um, that even through Babylon destroying the city of Jerusalem and all this horrible thing that happened, God says, I'm the one who's doing this through the people of Babylon. So in one sense, Babylon is doing it. In another sense, God is doing it. And so the point being uh, that a million things have to happen in history for history to move in the direction that it did. And we are not the ones who guide history. This is what he's talking about here when he says, I have the ones, I open the doors, and I have the keys. He is the one who guides history. Jesus is. Now, we hate that idea, don't we? It's part of us. We don't like the idea of not being in control. Um, there's a British poet, uh, poet named William Ernest Henley, and in 1880, uh, 1888, he wrote that famous poem that you've probably read or seen. I don't know if you read it in junior high or whatever. Uh, it's called Invictus, and, or Invictus. And what he says, uh, I'll read to you the last, I think I have it here. Um, yeah, the last couple of lines from the poem. It's a longer poem than this. This is just the end. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And now that sounds really good, and it was in that Matt Damon movie about Nelson Mandela, I think it was. Uh, you know, this was, uh, I think the movie was called Invictus. And the whole thing was, you know, Nelson Mandela is in control of his life and in control of his world and all that. Um, and the idea is that we are masters of our own destiny, right? We're masters of our own fate. We are in control of our lives. And the thing is, that's a very modern and a very Western kind of idea. Uh, But is that really true? Well, no, it's not. Think about it. Think about how many things have happened to you that you had no control over, right? Did you choose where you were born? 
No, did you choose when you were born, who your parents were, where you were educated, what talents you were born with? No, all of that stuff had a huge impact on who you are and who you became. Let's say for a second that you were born in India in 1700. What would your life look like? It would be very different from your life now, different family, different culture, different education, maybe different talents. The point being that you're not really the captain of your destiny. So much of what happens to you is outside of your control. And here's what the Bible says, though, that there is somebody who is in control. It's not that just it's free for all, that the Bible talks about how Jesus Christ is in control, the promised king in the line of David, the one who has the keys to all of history, the holy one. He's the genuine one, the real deal. And so that's his description of Christ. Oh, sorry, can we turn the mic? Sorry, it just got louder. Can we turn it down just a little? Thanks. Um, so that's the description of Christ. Now the letter, this is what he says now to the church in Philadelphia. He says this, verse 8. Uh, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So first thing he says is, again, what he says to, I think, every church, or at least almost every church. He says, look, I know your works. Jesus knows he says this to all these churches, right? Guys, I know the good, the bad, the ugly, right? I know it all. Uh, yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> uh, the open door, he says. So he says, first, I know your works. Then he talks about this open door that nobody is able to shut. Here's the thing. When we read about these open doors in Scripture, it's almost always talking about an opportunity for the people of God to share the gospel with those who are not part of the people of God yet. And so what he says is, I have set this door before you. The idea being that Jesus is the one who creates those opportunities to share the faith, right? He has decided to use us in his proclamation of the gospel. I, one of the, you know, have you ever thought about this? What is the first thing you're going to like ask Jesus, you know, when you get to heaven, you're going to sit down and talk to him and you're going to be able to ask him questions. One of the first things I think that I'm going to ask him is why us? Right? Why, if you think about it, he, Jesus could just come down, have coffee with every person on earth, and talk to them about the gospel, right? But for some reason, he doesn't do that. For some reason, he has decided to use just regular, dumb church people like us to take the gospel to the world. And it's an amazing privilege to be a part of that. And I think sometimes we don't really get what an amazing privilege that is while we're scared. We'll talk about this later, being scared of the gospel and that sort of stuff. But for some reason, he uses us. And he, but as that happens, he's the one who is still sovereign in history. He creates those opportunities. He is moving his kingdom forward, even if he's using dummies like us. And so just for our time, though, I think there's an important lesson here is I really, really, really love talking about how much I want us as a church, especially to be a part of the mission of God. And one of the phrases you're going to hear me use a lot, and I know some people use this phrase in weird ways and whatever, but one of the things I love to talk about is we call it missional living. And uh, it's what we do with um, when we start the new church together. It's what we do, why we have these called um, missional families. And missional living is simple. It's very simple. It's this. We want to live our lives with gospel intentionality. Everywhere we go, we are part of the kingdom of God. It's not just, we don't separate our lives. Here's my family, here's my work, here's church. And I do church on Sundays and I do everything else the rest of the week. Everywhere we go, we are part of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is the lens through which we see the entire world. So all of that stuff is supposed to be done with prayer and supposed to be done with intention because at any moment we could face opportunities to live out truth 
opportunities to share the truth with people, to talk about our own stories uh, with people. Um, at any moment, God could use our lives, our words, to touch someone's heart and to wake, awaken their soul to the truth of God. Uh, but here's the thing. Jesus is the one who opens those doors. Um, as we think about starting this church together, what I don't want to do, and uh, Paul and I were talking about this this week, uh, I don't want to burn everybody out putting on a Sunday morning and uh, putting church together, which is what happens with a lot of church plants. What I want to do is I want to spend as much, as little time, not that we want Sunday mornings to be bad, but I want to spend as little time throwing together a really fancy Sunday so that you guys aren't burned out to go out there and be actual missional living kind of kingdom people. Because everywhere you go, Jesus is putting opportunities uh, before you. And what I don't want to happen is that you're so concerned about our church plant and our Sunday church and all this stuff that you're missing those open doors. And we've all done this, right? We've all missed those open doors, those opportunities to share the wonderful truth about Jesus with the people around us. Um, how do we miss these doors, though? Think about this for a sec. What are the ways that we've missed these doors? Well, the first big one is that we're just too afraid to go through them. So it's not as if we don't see the door. It's just we see it and we say, not for me, right? What if that person breaks the relationship with me when I share the gospel with them or when I share what Jesus has done for me with them? Or uh, we think, well, what if they reject me? What if they laugh at me? What if, you know, whatever. There's a million things that can go wrong. Here's the thing. I've had all of those things happen to me in the last couple of years while I'm out in the city talking to people about faith. And you know what? I'm all right, you know, <laughs> I didn't die from any of them, you know, I'm all right. Uh, but I've had people laugh at me. I've had people, whatever. you know, it happens. But that's not really a reason to not go through those doors. Another reason we don't go through those doors is just laziness. It's easier to stay outside. Um, we Americans are really good at coasting through life. And then all of a sudden we're 65, 70. And then we're like, oh, what did I do with my life? And then, you know, 85, whatever. And then we die. And then we never actually did anything with our lives. That's the, that's the real American dream, right? Well, I had a boat. That was nice. Well, who cares, you know? Like, what do you really do? Like, let's not just be all about our hobbies and watching TV and this stuff when really there's these wonderful opportunities out there to live for Jesus. Another one is just self-centeredness, right? Uh, we don't see the doors because we're so wrapped up in ourselves. Everything's about me, 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 another very Western thing. But here's the big one. And this is what we're talking about here with this church in Philadelphia. A lot of times we don't see the open doors or we don't go through the open doors because we're in seasons of suffering right? Uh, Christian, here's the thing though, Christian suffering is never pointless. Philadelphia was a suffering church. This is a church like the one in Smyrna. They were under heavy, heavy persecution. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, look, you guys have little power. To be persecuted is to be powerless. This persecution was probably costing these believers money. It was probably costing them influence. It was costing them their freedom, and it was costing them pain. Right? Some of these folks were being whipped or executed or whatever it was. And what Jesus says to them, look, I know that you guys are powerless. And I know that you guys are suffering. But what did they do during that time of suffering? He says, you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. How? How did they stay faithful? How did they go through these open doors to share the gospel, even among this time of suffering? It all ties back to that description of Jesus. What did he say? He said, I have the keys. I'm in control. I decide what happens. I'm the one who is sovereign, right? It's uh, just like the uh, story of Habakkuk that we talked about. On one level, it was the Babylonian army 
uh, that was persecuting the people of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. God punished them for it. I just read the book of Jeremiah and then Lamentations, which was all about this stuff. And uh, that was the Babylonians that did that. But on another level, when you back up, Yahweh says, I have a purpose in all of this. I am still the sovereign Lord of history. I am still in control. And so even for the suffering church, Jesus has not lost control. And so in one sense, Jesus can say to them, I know you guys are powerless because in one sense, this church is powerless. And just like that church in Smyrna, they're being persecuted by this local group of uh, Jewish uh, synagogue and the community of Jewish people for religious reasons. They're being brought before the Romans. Uh, they're losing their jobs like uh, the guilds in that one uh, letter that we read. And so um, as they look at this situation, they seem to not be in control But here, because they aren't in control. But here's where they have hope. Here's where they have hope. The persecutors are not in control either. This is what this church exemplifies. They can endure this persecution by looking past the control of their persecutors into the control of their King Jesus. Do you see that? They say, okay, maybe in one sense, these guys, these Romans and these Jewish folks who are persecuting us are in control. But in a much bigger sense, our God is the one who holds the keys, who holds the keys and who controls the entire flow of history. And this is what Jesus promises them. I know right now it does not seem like there's any control and things are unraveling, but what's gonna happen is I'm gonna make them come bow down before you. And so he illustrates this, this control even more. These Jewish leaders are persecuting you, but eventually they're going to come and they're going to bow down before you. Now, this actually uh, comes from, if you, I think I put these in the Bible app. Maybe I didn't. Uh, there's three spots in Isaiah. Isaiah 45, 14, uh, 49, 23, and 60, 14, where it's predicted that the Gentiles are going to come and they're going to bow down before the people of God. And so... The book of Revelation here, Jesus in this letter uses that prophecy uh, and he picks it up just like the theme in, uh, if you've read the book of Romans, right? Think of the, uh, the book of Romans talks about, well, who's really a part of the, the people of God? How are you brought into the people of God by birth? No, through faith. And so Jesus is saying to this persecuted church in Philadelphia, you guys feel powerless, but here's the thing. You're the real people of God. And Jesus says, me being God, I'm in control, not these Jewish folks who are persecuting you. And eventually that's going to be made clear. And they think all these prophecies are about them that are actually about you. And one day it'll be shown that you guys were the ones who were right. You guys were the ones who were faithful to me. And so he's encouraging them, keep on enduring. And like I said, there's no rebuke in this letter. There's only encouragement. And so he continues uh, in 10 through 13. He says, look, because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him. He's going to get a sweet tattoo. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So because you guys have uh, kept my word with patient endurance. I love that phrase. I was, I was um, reading about this in my Bible software and in some sermons and some stuff. Uh, the idea of patient endurance is really amazing. Uh, it's the Greek word hypomone. And what it means is like a better, a literal, literal, literal wooden translation would be something like to hyperstay. And in Hebrews 12, 
it actually uses this same exact word. It's not used a lot in the New Testament. One of the places is Hebrews 12 to say that, talk about how Jesus hyperstayed to the cross, right? He faced the pain. He faced the suffering, the wrath of God. He stood there and he took it. He hyperstayed. That's the level of endurance now that's used here to talk about this persecuted church. They faced this persecution. They stood up in the face of this persecution. They hyperstayed. And so Jesus promises that because of that, I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial. Now, that's weird, right? Because you've faced persecution, I'm going to make sure you guys aren't persecuted. That really doesn't make much sense. But it does, I think, when you read it in Greek, it makes a lot more sense than in English. Because in Greek, that phrase, I'll keep you, has multiple levels. It can mean keep you from undergoing, so I'll stop this from happening to you. Or it can mean I will keep you kind of through this suffering. I will hold on to you through the suffering. And that second sense seems to make a lot more sense here, right? They're, you're suffering right now, but I am going to help you endure this uh, with faithfulness. That's what Jesus promises them. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. But how? How are they to do that? He says, look, I'm coming soon, so hold fast to what you have. The way through hope, uh, the way of hope through tribulation is this. Keep your eye on the second coming. That's what uh, Jesus promised a few weeks ago, right? The, keep your eyes on the bright morning star. He is the bright morning star. And so being united to him perfectly at his second coming, that's what we have to look forward to. And that's what feeds our hope, holding on to this truth. So in the end, he's coming back, and we will be vindicated. And so he says this again to the one who conquers. And we've said this every week. Remember, conquering is not winning through power. In the book of Revelation, conquering is Jesus' people staying faithful to him through love and service to the people around them. Loving even their enemies uh, is how we conquer the world. And if you do, this is the promise. You're going to become a pillar in the temple of my God. That's the first thing. Um, so the temple imagery runs through all of scripture. It's this wonderful imagery. And the temple is the place where heaven touches earth, where God dwells on earth in a special uh, way. And uh, without doing a whole sermon on temple imagery, which would be awesome, uh, in the end of Revelation, we see this description of the new Jerusalem and in the new heaven and earth. And what it says is, and there's no temple there because we don't really need one. Why? Why don't we need a temple? Because this will be the place where God's presence is all over the place like it was in the temple. And it's this imagery that God is everywhere and we're perfectly united to him. And so to be called a pillar in that temple means you're going to be a part of this system where God is everywhere. You're going to be perfectly united to him. And then the last promise is I'm going to give you this new tattoo with the name and the name of the new Jerusalem and all this. It's another way to get across this idea that you're going to belong to me and you're going to live in my new heaven and earth. And it's this wonderful promise. All right. So that's the end uh, Let's see. Yeah, that's the end of the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Let me tell you a story from the Old Testament that you probably already know, but let me tell you anyway. Uh, it's the story of Joseph. Think about this story for a minute. There was a boy in the book of Genesis. It's like the whole second half of the book of Genesis, basically. And or, you know, second, third of two thirds. Anyway, um, he, was, uh, he was raised by his dad uh, who had a bunch of different wives. He had 11 brothers. And at the beginning of the story, Joseph was kind of a stuck-up little punk uh, because he was his father's favorite. And you know, uh, you know, not to rag on only children, but you know only children, you know, like a, somebody who, who's raised without brothers and sisters, grows up with a trust fund, you know what I mean? Uh, drives an out, or dad's Audi, right? That, okay, that was Joseph, right? He had the nice coat. Everybody else was walking around in rags. He wasn't the only child, but his dad treated him like he was, and it got to his head a little bit. And one day he had this dream, and he told his brothers, someday I'm going to be in charge of you guys, and they got pretty mad about it. 
So they uh, attacked him, and they sold him into slavery. And so he was taken to the kingdom of Egypt. Now, while he was there, he landed on his feet. He got a good job working as the steward of this one guy's house. It was actually a pretty good job. And, uh, but because he was a pretty good-looking dude, uh, the lady of the house, right, the wife, hit on him. And when he refused uh, to take her to bed, she accused him of rape and had him thrown in jail. Then years went by. I want you to think about this, right? It's easy to read the story of Joseph in just an hour and a half or whatever as you're reading through the Bible. Years went by. Think about what you were doing maybe 10 years ago. I don't remember. It might say in the Bible how many years. I don't remember. But think of like what you were doing maybe 10 years ago, right? Now imagine the entire 10 years you just spent sitting in jail because you were falsely accused of a crime that you didn't commit. That's what Joseph went through. And every day that went by, we can imagine Joseph sitting in there thinking what a raw deal he was getting. Well, eventually, while he's in jail, these two guys come who had worked for the king and they, the pharaoh, and they'd lost his favor and they'd been thrown in jail. And he interpreted these dreams for them. And one of them, he promised, well, you're going to get executed, so you, I don't need to be your friend. But the other guy, he says, hey, you're not going to get executed. You're going to get your job back. And so when you do get your job back, dude, can you talk to the king for me? Because I'm really getting a raw deal. I didn't do anything. I shouldn't be in here. Can you see if you can get me out of jail? And the guy says, sure. And then the prophecies come true, exactly like Joseph says. One guy gets executed. The other guy gets his job back, completely forgets about Joseph. Right? No letter. Joseph's sitting in jail. He said he would talk to the king. He doesn't come and visit. I don't know what's going on. Well, then eventually, again, years go by, the pharaoh, the king, has a dream. And then the guy remembers, oh, yeah, I know this dude that can interpret dreams from jail. I forgot all about this guy. So Joseph interprets the dream for the king. He gets put in charge of the entire kingdom. I'm really paraphrasing this story here. We're really flying through this. He gets put in charge of the entire kingdom of Egypt as this famine happens. Uh, and because he was a great prime minister, whatever his title was, uh, he had saved up enough grain to sort of feed everybody in the area. And so people are coming from all over to get grain from the, from the king of Egypt. And a couple of those people were his brothers who had beat him and sold him into slavery. And so his brothers show up, and after a long story where he frames his little brother for theft and all this kind of you know, stuff, and uh, Joseph makes up with his family. He tells them who he is. At first, they don't recognize him, but eventually he tells them, hey, by the way, I'm your brother Joseph, you know, uh, the one that you threw into... And they were really afraid of what was going to happen. And they bring their father down, and they all make up. And then right when the father dies, they really start to freak out. Well, maybe he only didn't kill us because dad was still alive. And this is what, so they go to Joseph and they say, dude, are you going to kill us now? And Joseph says this in Genesis, I think I have a slide for this, Genesis 50. This is very important. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Do you see what Joseph does? He does what's commended with the church in Philadelphia. He looks past the purpose of man and he sees that there's a purpose of God. He has faith in the absolute sovereignty of God to guide and control history. So behind the purpose of man, which was hatred for their little brother and this wicked evil deed to basically ruin his life and sell him into slavery, and years and years and years he spent in prison and slavery because of these guys. He looked back behind the purpose of man, and he eventually did get to see the purpose of God, and that the purpose of God was to save everybody in the entire region from this famine. Now, this is what the church in Philadelphia is commended for, looking at their suffering through gospel lenses, looking past the purpose of man to the purpose of God. But there's another link here. This is how we want to end. There's another link I want to show you. You see, 
if the answer was whenever you're suffering, like the church in Philadelphia, uh, if the answer was, look, just suck it up because God knows what he's doing is not really great advice. That's horrible. That's horrible news. Right. But let me show you just a few more verses. Um, this is Jesus in the. Um, oh, wait, sorry. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. Uh, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is Jesus on the night when he is about to be arrested and the night before he is going to be crucified. Um, he is in anguish. He's facing the cross. He's facing the wrath of God. He's facing death. And he was so stressed out, it says in the Bible, that he was sweating drops of blood. And he did what any human would do. He asked God, is there any other way? Because I don't want to have to suffer this. But as we know, he did. So right after this prayer, what happens? Judas shows up with some thugs, and they arrest Jesus, and they drag him off to a bunch of false trials where they spit on him and they beat him up. And eventually he gets taken to Pilate, the Roman governor. And what happened to Jesus was brutal. I mean, they took him and they, they whipped him with what they call the um, cat of nine tails. It was like a whip with nine whips on it where they would tie in little pieces of pottery. So basically, they shredded his entire body with this, this whip. Uh, and a lot of people, actually, we know, died just from that part. They bled so much that they died. And his body goes into shock. And then they force him to carry the crossbeam. And as he's walking, tied to this crossbeam, he keeps falling and hitting his face on the ground. And he gets so bad that they don't want him to die from that. So they take the beam off and they make this other dude, Simon, carry it up. Then they take him up to the top of Golgotha. They nail him to this crossbeam. And then with ropes, they pull him up on the on the beam and they nail his feet in, probably from the sides of his feet actually like this, like through his ankles, so that he could be tied there and he could just kick off just enough to breathe. And so he would go into this moment of breathing and not breathing and just absolute agony that sometimes took days to die. And the, the, there's a word we use in English, it's excruciating. You know that word? It actually means from, like, from the cross, like being on a cross is what the word excruciating means because this is one of the most brutal ways that anybody could die. And Jesus was facing this. But even more than the pain of the cross, the human pain of the cross, here's what Jesus faced. He faced the wrath of God Almighty. The wrath of the God who created the entire world was poured out on Jesus in our place. And I think that's what he was really afraid of. Was not, I mean, not to say the crucifixion wasn't brutal and awful, but for him to be separated, part of the Trinity, to be broken off from that Trinity, and then to have the entire wrath for all of the sin of the people of God poured out on him was absolutely excruciating. But look at how Peter describes Jesus' death in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see the two levels there? Same as Joseph. See, he says, you, he specifically points at this group of the Jewish mob in Jerusalem, and he says, you guys killed Jesus according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, that's, that's those two uh, that's those two levels. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, our sin is paid for. Our slate is wiped clean. 
we receive the grace of God. We can be reunited to God. We can be brought back into a perfect relationship with him. That's why we were created, was be, to be united to Christ. And so our ultimate hope then is in that coming reality. And here's why this is important, because uh, Jesus doesn't come along to this church in Philadelphia and say, look, guys, suck it up. He says, I suffered too. I am the Holy One. I'm the real deal. I am Yahweh God, and I became a man. I put on this human flesh, and I suffered with you. But my suffering, he says, was not aimless. It was to buy you back, to bring you home, and to redeem you. And so when Jesus asks us to suffer for the gospel and to suffer for his name, he's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done. And so when we suffer for the gospel, know that Jesus did that too. But in his suffering and in ours, our perfect heavenly father, who is the sovereign Lord of the universe, has some sort of a greater purpose. Now, I'll also say this. Sometimes we don't get to be Joseph and see what that purpose is. We don't get to know. Well, God meant this for good. And because all these people were saved. Sometimes we don't know why we're suffering, and we'll know when we get to the new heaven and new earth. But um, what we do know is that our hard times will often lead for opportunities to share the faith with other, others. And one day we're all going to be in the new heaven and new earth together, and this church in Philadelphia will be there too. And I'll take one of these guys out for coffee, and I'll ask him, hey, was the suffering that we read about and we talked about that Sunday morning, uh, was it worth it? And they'd say to me, I'll do it a million times again because of the glory of God. And now that I know what I'm seeing on this side of eternity, of course it was worth it. God had his purpose, and he knew what he was doing. And then they'll say, do you see Bob over there? And I'll look over, and Bob will be having coffee. And they'll go, because I suffered, Bob is here today. And it's worth it a million times. And so my encouragement to you is life is not always easy. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes the world is trying to crush you. Living in San Francisco is a hard place to be faithful to Jesus. Let's be real about that. Right? This is sort of the epicenter of anti-Christian uh, sentiments in the world. And what Jesus says is, that's okay, because I have a, I've put you guys here for a reason. I know it's hard, and I want you to be faithful to me. Because someday, we're all going to get to the new heavens and the new earth, and we're going to see... We're going to see a bigger picture of God's plan, and we're all going to thank him, and we're going to praise him that we got to suffer for his holy name. Amen? All right, let's pray. So put that on your calendar. So it'll just happen right after the Sunday morning service, like we've done for the last uh, few of these lunches, which have been really great. Um, and then the third announcement is there's um, just sort of another meeting with the leadership of the EFCA church here um, on the 20th, right? Um, following the service. No, wait, is that right? Second, yes. Yeah, there you go. On the second, um, February 2nd, so the week before the lunch. Uh, so if you have any questions that you want to ask those guys, especially, and just hear sort of from them, and you don't want to ask it with me in the room, you know, like, hey, who's this idiot, you know, kind of stuff, this is the meeting to go to. And so they asked me to specifically mention this today because we really want as many people to go to that one too, um, just to talk about it and uh, you know, this partnership and this merger and all that stuff um, as we get ready to plant. Um, we want you guys to get your questions out now. Uh, that's better than six weeks after we launch together uh, kind of a thing. And, um, you know, uh, I'll just say, too, as the, that's just sort of the logistics of this. Um, I just also ask you guys to continue to just keep praying about this. Um, I was sharing with somebody this week, one of you guys, that what we're doing here together, launching this new church together, is like super weird. And there's no books about, you know, how to 
have a partnership like this, and there's not a lot of stuff about this, um, but here's the thing. I really do feel that uh, what's happening here is an answer to a lot of years of prayer from me and some other people, and probably prayer for you guys, too, as you're just praying about the future of your congregation, um, and uh, we have a really unique opportunity here to live as kingdom people in our little corner of San Francisco, and uh, I'm really excited about what's happening. I want to answer everybody's, you know, questions, and I, you know, about missional families and missional living and what is church going to look like and that. So I really encourage you to go to both of these things. Um, and if you have a lot of questions, especially reach out. I'd love to take you out. Um, if you don't have any questions, I'd still love to take you out. Just I'm trying to get to know everybody a lot better. Um, so just keep praying about this. Uh, it's kind of big doings that we've got going on here. Uh, but I'm very excited about what's happening. Um, yeah, so uh, with that, I'll invite uh, Flora and uh, Julia back up and we'll... Uh, We'll sing a song and then we'll close. to uh, stand for the benediction. I'm going to read to you. Uh, I love this doxology from the book of Jude. Jesus' little brother wrote this. This is wonderful. He says, and this is how we'll close the service today. Oh, and then um, downstairs afterwards, we've got coffee and that sort of stuff. Uh, look forward to seeing you all down there. Um, from the book of Jude, Jude 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Go in peace. We'll see you guys downstairs. Somewhere, maybe up there, I can stash some stuff. Yeah. Can I just put it on that table right there? Do they use that table? For use something? that table. Uh, I'll find a place for it. Is there? It's like this Bible. I only use it for Sunday mornings. Um, the recorder. Maybe.